What's up, dog? What's up, dog? We just watched a bunch of Churdly's videos on uh, YouTube. Churdly's. I have not actually watched a whole lot of his stuff, but I so, got to start. I'm going to be speaking like uh, that for a while. After. <laughs> yeah, bruh. Um, so this is going to be a special episode because it's actually, it's actually going to be a, um, an Oreo double-stuffed episode. Mm-hmm. A double-decker triple, um, a double-decker peanut butter jelly sandwich episode, if you will. Um, the first one I did was um, Luke O'Neill. He's a freelance writer. Um, he's written for the Boston Globe. He's written for Vice. He's written for Esquire. Esquire um, a bunch of places. He now predominantly writes a newsletter called Welcome to Hell World, which is where he talks about a barrage of things, po- mostly pol- mostly um, societal um, politics and such. Um, but we talked about a whole bunch of stuff regarding um, the current state of kind of newsletters and the idea of independent journalism and kind of what that means in the grand scheme of things. And that was a solo interview. I wasn't there for that one. Yeah, Joe was not there for that one. Um I don't know, Joe, do you, you're you're a writer and you have a blog. What do you how do you how does it feel having that little independent uh, sandbox playing? Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I've only put up like four articles on it, mm-hmm. but um yeah, it, it's definitely interesting. Um you know, I like I don't know, I just like looking at it, you know. Yeah. Like it, it's very clean. Um I like the format of WordPress. I know a mm-hmm. lot of people use Medium. I use Medium. Personally, um, like Medium, it definitely looks more sleek, uh, but I feel like the brand Medium is just too all over it. Yeah. So it's sort of hard to, it wouldn't be like, you know, Joe's blog. It would be like Joe's Medium page. No, I already. That's yeah. sort of why I like the minimalist um, aspect of WordPress. And it's cool, you know, like, you know, I'm just in the price process of writing my first paid article. Um, yeah. So I've really only had experience uh, here at the magazine. And yeah. obviously, like, I have, you know, a fair amount of freedom here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it does feel good to not be hampered by, like, a word count yeah. or something like that. And just sort of being able to go more niche, you know. Yeah. The, the first article I wrote for my blog was um, sort of I was trying to make a very, like, dense point. Um, that may not have, um, I, I may have, ma- may have had to make, uh, some compromises if I were to write it for a publication that yeah. wasn't just my blog. So, um, it felt nice to sort of have that freedom to play around. Um, and newsletters, I think, are definitely like way different than a blog. Yeah. You know, it's sort of, um sort of update not not only on like your writing but sort of like the writer's thoughts on it as a person as it goes along um, yeah i subscribe to this foreign policy blog called um and that's the way it was sort mm-hmm. of like le- left wing um foreign policy analysis and that's not a newsletter but it's sort of in the same format as a newsletter yeah um and it, it's a format that i you know i i wasn't really um into tiny letter i i don't think that was you know, Tiny Later was definitely, like, big with a lot of people, but I don't really think uh, it was targeted towards 
me, like, right. as, like, a guy. Um, yeah. So, I, I don't know a ton about it, and I'm excited to listen to this interview. Word, and you'll hear Luke say, I think even with um, newsletters, all the newsletters that are successful, or at least most of them, are started by people who already had a following. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. his, 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 he had, like, Luke had a following for, like, 20 years, so his new, mm-hmm. newsletter took off. Someone like David Turner, who was a writer for a track record in MTV News, has a newsletter... Yeah, Taibbi too, especially. I mean, those are all, these are all um, Eve Pizer, uh, Alphonse Pierre. These are all people who had like big followings beforehand, mm-hmm. which is why this was able to take off. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting interview, guys. We talk about a bunch of stuff. We talk about newsletters. Um, aside from that, we, we also talk about activism and mm-hmm. just um, yeah, just we also talk about Luke's background and how he became uh, a writer in general. Yeah, I know he's a Boston guy. He was like, yeah. a hardcore guy. Right? Um, he was in, he's a, he's in an emo band, like a Smiths inspired kind of emo band. Cool, cool. Um, if you listen to our bonus episode with Chris Ott, you'll know that Chris Ott also was in the same scene as him at that time. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he mentioned that a little bit. Oh, uh, because they're both, yeah, they're both <laughs> they're, awesome guys. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, guys, um, enjoy this interview with uh, Luke O'Neill and let it roll. Yeah, bruh. Today I'm here. This is an interview with uh, Luke O'Neill. Luke is a well. Luke, why don't you why don't you introduce yourself? How would you describe uh, Luke O'Neill? Uh, I guess uh, a journalist of sorts, but uh, now I'm sort of uh, focusing on a, a newsletter. It's called Welcome to Hell World, and uh, it's kind of journalism, kind of uh, just uh, writing in a more literary way. And it's uh, been turned into a book, which is. Coming out uh, in about a month, uh, at the end of August, early September. Also called Welcome to Hell World. So, all right, cool. Um, how did um, how how did you go about um, creating creating the book, like turning uh, Welcome to Hell World into a book? Well, <clears throat> it's interesting because in both cases, uh, I, I usually tend to be, I don't know, I kind of have to be dragged into doing something new, uh, right. and. Uh, when when the folks who run uh, Substack, that's the, uh, the sort of new uh, newsletter company, they came to me last year, and I guess they were recruiting lots of writers, and, and they, they continue to do so uh, to, to use their platform, and, and the guy kind of had to twist my arm because, you know, I, I, I've been a, pretty much a traditional freelance journalist for most of my life, for about 15 years now, mm-hmm. uh, most of my career anyways, not my life, but... Um, uh, you know, writing for for uh, places like Esquire and, and the Boston Globe were you know two of my main uh, places I wrote for for many years. Um, so I don't know. I was like, I don't. What's a newsletter? I don't really know how that would work, and I don't think anyone would sub- sub- subscribe. Excuse me. Um, but I was like, all right, fuck it. I'll do. I'll give it a try, and if it doesn't work, then you know, no big deal. So. Yeah, I started to do it. Weirdly, people started to subscribe and then, you know, a few thousand here, a few thousand there. And after it kind of became a little bit popular, the the folks, uh, this publisher, uh, OR Books in New York, the the guy, the publisher was a big fan. And he came to me with the idea of, of compiling the essays in the newsletter into a book. And and I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, same thing with the newsletter. But uh, he was like, you know, it'll it'll be pretty easy. And I was like, well, all right, fuck it, I'll try that. And um, 
So, yeah, basically both things, the newsletter and the book just came because somebody kind of, you know, kicked me in the ass a little bit and, and got me motivated. And, and uh, I'm glad they did because, you know, I, I generally uh, I tend to be a pretty fucking lazy person who doesn't want to do anything. <laughs> um, when you how did you let's go back to the beginning for a second. Uh, where are you from? Uh, how did you, you know, not only get into writing, but um, particu- particularly how did you uh, fall into like, you know, more journalistic essay writing and freelancing and such. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I live, uh, just outside of Boston now mm-hmm. and I've lived here for, I lived in Massachusetts. I, you know, I grew up here. Uh, I've lived in, you know, a few other places in my life, New York and in DC for brief periods, but, uh, pretty much, you know, around the Boston area most of my life. And, um, <clears throat> I, I didn't, I, I, I studied English in college. Mm-hmm. I always, you know, was a big reader. Um, and I was, you know, a little bit of a writer. I, I, I did some writing in college, and um, I always wanted to be. I had this vague idea of being a journalist. I, I wanted to be a music journalist. Uh, I was also, I'm also a musician, um, and you know, sort of was an obsessive music fan uh, growing up. And you know, through most of my adulthood now, even though I, I sort of tapered off a little bit now that I'm older. Um, and, you know, don't feel like going out to shows like four nights a week anymore. Uh-huh. But um, uh, somehow, I don't know. I I never really thought, I didn't really know what being a journalist was. Uh, you know, this is, I, I graduated college in like 99. So this is a while ago. And the things were different. It was sort of a different landscape for media then. The, the internet was, you know, newspapers and magazines were just sort of starting to figure out how to, you know, use the internet. And they took a really long time to figure it out, which is, which is kind of gotten a lot of them in the bind that they're, the, they've been in for the past few years. Um, but somehow I have no idea how I just applied for some random editorial assistant job, uh, at Condé Nast and uh, working on, you know, as an editorial assistant, I got that and I, I went there and, and worked for them for a couple of years, um, basically doing nothing. I didn't really learn anything. It was a, you know, shitty job, but you know, it was a foot in the door. And, um, and then I, I decided, well, I, I've always wanted to be a writer more so than a journalist. You know, uh, I wanted to write, you know, literary things, you know, mm-hmm. like, a, as I said, I was always a voracious reader of fiction and poetry. So I went came back to Boston to go to Emerson uh, to go to grad school to get an MFA. And uh, I was just about, I did that for, you know, two years. I did all the classes and everything. It was about time to turn. I, I don't know if this is all really <laughs> fucking boring. I, no, I mean, it's fun. This is good. Yeah, this is. Um, and uh, just when I was came time to do my thesis, uh, I heard about a job at the Weekly Dig, which was this all-weekly here in Boston. So there was two all-weeklies at the time. It was Boston Phoenix and, and the Weekly Dig. Mm-hmm. And they had a job for a, a music editor. And so I applied for that and, and you know, somehow got that. And uh, I was like, well, I'm a, writer. I'm a professional writer now. I don't need to finish this degree. I'm just going to go, and this is it. This is the start <laughs> of my career. And I took the took that job making a I was making twenty thousand dollars a year with no benefits. It was uh, but I felt like I had, you know, I felt like I had made it, you know. And right. uh, so that was sort of the start of my of my writing, uh, my journalism career. I was focusing on music journalism, which 
you know, weirdly was still a thing people were interested in in the early 2000s, uh, unlike now where, where, you know, that, that whole profession has pretty much been decimated as well. When you say um, the, inter- the Internet has kind of gotten a lot, um, you mentioned before that um, a lot of these um, publishers and these uh, websites have kind of, and like magazines have gotten themselves to a certain spot because of the, of the Internet. What do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, you, you, I'm sure you're well aware that, yeah. that nobody wants to pay for, for mm-hmm. newspapers or magazines anymore. And, you know, the number of them that have closed... Like when I uh, so when I started out, there was all weeklies in almost every city, for example, uh, you know, even smaller cities, and those those started to go away because a lot of them were were sort of room, uh, you know, they once Craigslist came along, they kind of cut off like this huge source of revenue for all weeklies, and and that that Craigslist also fucked with daily newspapers as well. Um, but all the while, a lot of these big newspapers and magazines were really slow to even get online. And, uh, like, they didn't really, they really sort of dragged their feet about figuring out how to accept that the Internet was, was going to change everything. Um, and at the time, and there's still some of this at, you know, some, some like, even to, until a couple, you know, not that long ago, three, four, five years ago, a lot of, older editors at some of these places, like especially like, you know, newspapers like the Boston Globe or stuff, they yeah. still had this uh allegiance to print that was just was just such a like a, a dinosaur way of thinking about things. Um so, you know, they the first they papers and magazines decided, you know, well, we're just not gonna get involved in the internet. And then a lot of them were like, well we're just gonna give it all away for free and we'll make the money through you know, through impressions, through selling ads, and that didn't work out. And I think the industry at large just really fucked up how how to sort of weather the sea change from from print to digital. Well, then I mean, yeah, because yeah, I mean, even then you had the whole like pivot to video video that happened a couple of years ago. Right. And Vice right. had like I think they they laid off like at the time like sixty percent of their staff, of their oh, writing yeah, staff, yeah, I think, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just a that's just a continuation of the pattern that I'm talking about that mm-hmm. that, that has been going on. You know, for 20 years, where where uh, people, you know, institutions are slow to sh- slow to change, especially older ones, you know, ones that have been around for a long time. Um, <clears throat> but that's not to say like that these younger, more nimble upstarts, you know, digital native, don't fuck up too, because they don't seem to know what they're doing either. All these sites come along and they're like, we're run by you know young people who get it, and we're gonna, you know, give the news to millennials in a way that they you know that, that they understand yeah like mike.com sorry that was the whole mike.com thing yeah like mike for example yeah that's a perfect example of what i'm talking about the um the uh the through line through all of these though um in in the the, the this one similar bad guy in all of this and it's the owners who are you know often multi-millionaires right. who um, you know, they, they're uninterested in anything besides continuing to extract profit from, uh, you know, the, the media properties that they own. And as soon as it looks like they aren't going to be able to maximize, you know, as much, uh, you know, just suck out as much money as possible that they, they either sell it off or close up shop, you know? 
And then, so, oh yeah, go ahead. So no, it's basically just a you know it's just a traditional st- uh, a story of traditional capitalism at work, you know, and um, uh, a lot of the the owners um, of of older print outlets and, and newer websites, if they they don't seem content to just run a self-sustaining business. Everything's about growth, growth, growth. And if you, you know, if you, I don't, the, the idea of, so for me, the idea of running a, a, a magazine or a website or something that, that does interesting stuff, people read it, you know, maybe not tens of millions, but people read it and it sustains itself and you, you can put out a good product. That seems pretty cool to me. I, I don't, I don't know uh, why a lot of these guys aren't satisfied with that, but that's, you know, that's, I guess that's the difference between them being super rich and me just being some fucking guy, you know? You have a newsletter, obviously, we just mentioned. Have you, would you say that, like, going towards a more, that writers need to be more resourceful in terms of people who want to make a living, or even not make a living, but just put a, uh, um, put content out there? Mm-hmm. Like, um, would you say that, um, taking a more independent route like um, newsletters is a, maybe a better way to do that nowadays or it's, it's certainly worth a try. The mm-hmm. thing is <clears throat> it depends on what kind of career you want to have. Right. If you want to have the sort of traditional uh, prestigious career, you know, where you go to the, go to a really good college and you're probably interning at, you know, the New York times or the post or wherever are, you know, when you're still in college and you want to climb the ladder and, and that sort of thing, that that's, that's still possible. It's, it's, you know, for a, uh, uh, increasingly small, uh, or, or, uh, continuing to, uh, to decrease the number of people that that's available to. Um, but the alternative is, is, you know, sort of going out on your own and it has been, you know, it's similar to, the, the podcasting thing, like the, the new yeah. whole new thing that's going on with newsletters now is, is basically the, the, what we saw with podcasts. And, um, there's going to be a lot of people that break out and are, become stars at it and, and make lots of money. And there's going to be, um, you know, a middle class of people who maybe make some little extra money and it, you know, it's, it's, uh, to, to supplement their income. And then there's going to be tons of people that don't, uh, can't figure out how to make it work. And that's, um, that's not to say any of that has anything to do with talent. A lot of it's just luck and timing and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't, uh, if I was a young person starting out today, I wouldn't look at the newsletter model as, um, some sort of surefire path to, to, you know, uh, breaking out or anything like that. The, the sort of the sad thing about it is that the people who are, doing well with newsletters are people who already uh, had a sort of established brand in, in mm-hmm. writing or journalism. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that somebody who starts one and it just happens to be great won't, won't find an audience, but it's just, you know, it's not really going to be a sure thing. So um, I, I highly recommend anyone who, who's, you know, intrigued by it, try it. And, and it, you know, it's literally, you have nothing to lose, you know, maybe, Maybe you find an audience. Maybe it's really fulfilling to you. Whether or not you charge money for it or not, it's just you know it, it, uh, it's a it's a pretty cool way to to be creative and, and connect with some readers. Right. Um, so a few. What, this, I, I believe this was a few months back. There was a holding that happened with the Boston Globe. Um, 
And I, yeah. do, um, do you want to explain what happened with that quickly? Because that kind of segues to another topic, actually. Well, sure. That was um, – so as I mentioned, you know, I, I, I wrote for lots of uh, publications like that mm-hmm. uh, over my career. And uh, I've been writing uh, an opinion column there for, for about four or five months um, after, after not writing for the globe, I, I started writing for the globe, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, but then I took some, some years off, but mm-hmm. came back this, this year and I didn't really want to do it. Um, the editor there, like, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, I have to be you know convinced to do anything. I was like, fine, I'll do it. Cause she really, uh, was trying to convince me. And so the way I thought of it was that I'm just going to try to, push the envelope as much as I can by including, uh, incorporating sort of, um, angry, uh, leftist, uh, opinions in there, which, you know, you don't tend to see in a traditional newspaper. And, you know, I did, for the most part, I did a lot of good stuff about guns and, and healthcare and, and, um, you know, rich fucks, uh, screwing people over. Right. And, um, but then I finally got to one that was about uh, the concentration camps we have, yeah. and uh, I. Uh, it was around the time Kristen Nielsen was resigning from the Department of uh, Homeland Security, Secretary, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I kind of like jokingly talked about what we should do to to these people if uh, if you see them at a restaurant. Because I, I had been a waiter for a long time when I when I was first coming up and, you know, freelancing. I, I was a waiter as well on the side. And um, it, it really made a lot of people mad. Uh, instantly, the whole entire right-wing apparatus seized on it. And, you know, Fox News had a story up on it uh, on their website. And then Tucker Carlson did something on it in that day. And Rush Limbaugh and Ben Shapiro and all these people were sharing it. Like, look at this disgusting lib. Uh, encouraging people to to uh, you know poison Republicans just because you, they disagree, and uh, so the the Globe, um, like many other traditional legacy publications, they got cold feet, and they uh, the owner stepped in, the billionaire owner John Henry, and he said, "Take the thing down," so it was deleted. Um, so. Uh, so and then I, I was like, fuck you, then I, I quit, you know, because I, I don't want to write for a place mm-hmm. that uh, – and then they sort of, um, you know, they didn't even stand by me at all. They they put out a statement saying Luke O'Neill isn't on staff, you know, it's, it's like as if uh-huh. to distance themselves from me. So basically they were siding with the Tucker Carlson's of the world and, and right. threw me under the bus. So uh, it, it was uncomfortable. I got lots of, lots of hate for, for – you know, uh, about a week and a half and, um, you know, uh, people, some of the worst people in the world, uh, in my mentions for, for a long time. But, uh, you know, ultimately I, I think it, it, it probably worked to my, to my benefit because it put my newsletter in front of a lot more eyeballs than, than would have seen it otherwise. Uh, the reason why I bring that up is because I know, um, I don't, I don't know if you know Kim Kelly, the writer, she's a, yeah, yeah, for sure. She's, yeah, she's yeah. a music, right. Uh, for those who don't know, she's a music journalist. She's written for. She was an editor at Vice, and she's kind of been involved in the kind of rebranding of Teen Vogue. But she got like I know recently it was announced she was like uh, fired. Well, not fired from, but she was like told that that NPR was. She was a contributing writer at NPR, 
and told her that they weren't going to like they were they were going to start refusing to publish her because of like her activism, she, like labor activism. Right. What are your thoughts on this whole idea of like companies um, of like these like media companies suddenly like, kind of pushing more kind of pushing their more activist um, you know uh, involved yeah. um, writers yeah, and employees out of um, kind of under the bus you know because like you know Kim Kelly was involved in the Vice Union and she she, she got laid off and you know right. as well. Yeah, this is all in keeping all in line with the sort of the general through line of what I've been talking about here is that these large media companies, the Mm -hmm. traditional legacy media companies, not being slow to adapt. And NPR has gotten really strange uh, in the Trump era. Uh, They still seem to be uh, they still seem to be thinking that we're, we're treating, you know, we're operating how things have always been where you, you know, you present both sides and you let the, uh, you know, the listeners figure it out for themselves. But that, that's not really, uh, that sort of thing isn't working anymore. And the you know, New York times has, has certainly slow, been slow to do that too. There was a thing recently where, where an NPR editor explained why they aren't going to use the word racist for, for Trump, uh, when describing Donald Trump, when he's obviously being racist. Um, and uh, it's just this weird adherence to this outdated norm about neutrality and objectivity in journalism. And, uh, you know, setting aside, you know, I, I align with Kim a lot on, on, on our politics and our, our way of thinking. Um, right. You don't have to uh, be strident, uh you know, anarchist or whatever, I think that, you know, whatever she is, um, anarchist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you do the time for playing it down the middle. Like you're some 1970s newsman on TV or 1960s or whatever that that's gone. That's not here. Uh, it's not an option anymore. And uh, that doesn't mean that you have to, like, lie or bend the facts or, or anything like that. It's just the opposite. It, it, like, you have to state uh, things as they are. You have to explain the world as it is to people. And, you know, bending yourself into knots, like trying not to state the obvious, something like Trump is racist. Um, or, you know, the whole debate they were having, like, don't call them concentration camps. I was like... You know th- that sort of thinking is 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 from a bygone era, and and it's it's uh you know these places are gonna are, are sort of dragging their feet on on recognizing that, and so that's you know that's sort of what happened to Kim, and that you know as a I don't think she was like a very regular contributor there or anything, but she was a freelancer there, and um, that's just another example of you know. Uh, well, what actually what happened to her is she got on Tucker Carlson and, and, and shit like that uh, for something she did. I don't remember what what uh, what caught there, uh, what made her catch their ire, and that's why NPR decided to sever ties with her, right? Um, because the right was mad, and it's you know that's when, like the exact same thing that happened to, with me at the Globe. It's like they're they they're pandering to for some reason they're pandering to the right. Who are going to hate them anyways? Like everyone who was mad at the Globe for my thing, they still hate the Globe, even though I'm not going to write there. And everyone who was mad at Kim for whatever she did uh, uh, is still going to hate NPR. And mm-hmm. it's just like they keep trying to uh, court, a, you know, an audience that is never going to accept them. Do you feel like 
So what do you think is the solution? Do you think there's a, that'll ever? Um, do you think that these these um, com- companies will ever come around to like that fact or? Uh, I don't know. Uh, some of them have. Uh, I, I, I guess you're seeing some of the some of the major uh, media outlets have started to, you know, use the word racist or when it comes to Trump or use, you know, call them concentration camps or or accurately talk about the, the epidemic of gun violence or, or police violence. Um, and uh, it's sort of slow, but I, I don't know. I'm not very. I mean, it's nice to see little bits of it going on. I'm not particularly optimistic that we're going to see this giant sea change. Uh, you still have cable news networks are, are still largely helmed by, um, you know, shithead, like, right, you know, like Jake, like the likes of Jake Tapper. And so I, I was going to call him a centrist, but he's barely even a centrist at this point. Uh, he's a center right type of guy, um, and you know you don't see any uh, anything beyond really that sort of uh, centrist orbiting uh, style of thinking on on the cable news networks, and that's sadly where lots of people get their news. So I mean, I'm not in a, I'm in a, I'm not in a particularly optimistic uh, frame of mind about the future of media at the moment. Right. Um, that being said, uh, what do you as someone who's like radical? What do you what are your thoughts on the current um, wave of like leftist podcasting, like Chapo and Red Scare and all that? I don't really have too much an opinion on any of that uh, because weirdly, I don't, um, I don't like have a much of a pod. I never really became like a podcast guy. I don't. know. It's like. Uh, no offense to, to you. No, no, I don't think podcast not at all. Here, but um, I just don't really listen to uh, many podcasts. I not I guess part of that might be because I like I don't commute. Uh, you know, I feel like not that's word. when everyone listens to their podcasts is like on their way to work. And uh, uh but um, no, I, I don't really. I I definitely I don't really listen to either of those. But I, I think that the um, that you know I, I uh, the Chapo. I, folks are, they do a lot of good work and i'm glad that they exist and are out there and and uh i certainly think uh felix is one of the funniest guys on twitter so uh you know i'm all i'm all for their success do you think um so you wouldn't say so you wouldn't say you're you'd ever jump on out a wave yourself of doing a, a hell world podcast something like that no people like uh, they so on Substack they've started this thing where you can just easily like embed a pod a podcast yeah tool and I don't know. I, I love interviewing people. Um, you know, I've done it thousands of times in my life, but it's different when you interview people, uh, for writing a story, uh, like that's a, that's a, um, a tool and a muscle that I've I've very much cultivated over the years. But, uh, I think interviewing for, for something that's going to be broadcast, that's like, it's a totally different thing that I just never really learned how to do. Um, so, but no, I, I'm going to focus on I, like uh, the 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 newsletter is basically what my podcast would be, but I just you know I just write it down, you know I right. I uh, but you know and I also feel like I missed the boat, you know it's mm. it's it's too late now. There's too there's so many it would just be so hard to stand out. Word, and finally, you, what what are some of your um 
and you, you've been working for like you know almost twenty years now. It seems like what mm-hmm. are what are some of the pieces you feel you're most proud of today on your byline? Oh geez, I should have prepared me for that one. Um, I I some of them are so the the with the Welcome to Hell World book mm-hmm. that's coming out soon. It's it's mostly the newsletter stuff. Um, but uh, I included a bunch of different essays, you know, that I wrote for elsewhere, for mm-hmm. Esquire or The Guardian or, or Boston Magazine or a place like that. Uh, one of them that's in there that's probably one of my favorites was from like four or five years ago, mm-hmm. which was for Esquire, which was about um, the phenomenon of needing to go viral in order to uh, do a, uh, a GoFundMe for your help for healthcare. Yeah. And, um, we, you know, we are all sort of really accustomed to that at the moment, but it was sort of like this fresh horror a few years ago uh, where people were like, you can't just be like, I'm sick, I need help. You need to be sick in this sort of relatable and marketable way. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> so I did a big thing on that. And I, I, I don't know, that was probably one of my favorite things that I've ever done. And it also sort of perfectly encapsulates um, what what I mean by hell world. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like we don't just live in a country where you get sick and die. We live in a country where you have to do this sort of horrible, uh, you know, song and dance so you don't die first, if that makes sense. No, yeah. Um, so that's probably one of my favorites. Uh, and uh, I, there's another one in there about um, that I did for Boston Magazine about um, what happens to, you know, as people start to die uh, and what happens to their digital footprint and all of the, the you know, the text messages and voicemails and things like that that we have mm-hmm. of our you know, our, our parents or, or, you know, lovers or whoever, when they die and we, um, you know, sort of the, the, the weird dystopian aspect to that and, and holding on to them forever. And, um, so I'd say those are two of my favorites. I guess, uh, one of the big ones I did for the newsletter was where I uncovered this shitty, uh, scheme that a bunch of publications were using for this, um, payment portal called work market where they Mm -hmm. were actually charging writers to be able to take out their money. And uh, I sort of exposed that. So I was was pretty proud of that one. Um, But yeah, that's probably a pretty good cross spectrum of the type of things that I've done. Nice. Luke, I like to end um, most, I'm sorry, I'm starting, we're starting ending on the podcast now where when we end these interviews, we like like to end with a quick segment called nuts and bolts. Mm -hmm. So Luke, a couple of quick questions. These are very simple. Number one, when you're writing a, your newsletter or an article or whatever you may be, do you use Google Docs or Microsoft Word? Uh, I use Word, but I know oh, I wow. should be using. I mean, I sometimes <laughs> use Google Docs, but like I've lost, you know, things that I've worked so hard on when when computers are fried and they were mm-hmm. they were just on a, a you know Word doc, so. If it's something that I'm working on that I would be devastated that, that I lost all of it, I'll write it in Word. But like occasionally, I'll go over, tab over to Google Docs and like save it in there just in case. All right, a little, little both. Do you use a MacBook? Are you Mac or Windows? Mac, MacBook. Yeah. Nice. Pro or Air? Air. Nice. Do you write in double spaced or default space, which I guess is like single or point fifteen? 
single. There you go. Okay, Luke. Um, thank you for doing this interview. Really appreciate hey, the time. No yeah, I I'll, hope it uh, goes well for you. And uh, thanks for taking an interest. No, no, man. No problem, man. Anytime. It's a uh, good stuff. Keep up the good work. All right, cool. Same to you. Nice right. talking to you, man. Thanks to you, man. Peace. Bye. guys and that i hope you enjoyed that um that uh fascinating interview with luke o'neill no that was a uh, i really enjoyed doing that one and i'm really happy with how that one turned out um this next interview we got is one that joe was here for mm-hmm. um we interviewed uh jeremy kaplowitz mm-hmm. kaplowitz kaplowitz yeah um kaplowitz he, he's a hilarious guy he writes for hard drive which is the hardtimes.com their uh, video game satire vertical he's the editor-in-chief uh, editor-in-chief that's right and um you may know him if you're uh, on twitter as you may know him as ace Watkins, the gamer president uh running for president as the doing identity politics but for gamers basically <laughs> um it's a really funny fucking character that he does and uh it was an interesting interview he's a super chill guy so I think you like that one. It really is. Yeah, we talked about gaming, uh, the game, gamer culture, and mm-hmm. uh, why it's so funny, which is something I, st- I still think is really fascinating. How yeah, this... I mean, he he even had trouble articulating it. It's um, something about it that's just it's, so interesting. It's very yeah, it's enigma. Uh, I it's, don't know what's so funny. About the idea of like just gamers rising up as a subculture. Yeah, just like gamer as an identity. Um, and we didn't talk about Gamergate at all, which I'm happy. Yeah, I am too. It would have been like the early episodes where it was a little bit darker at that point. Mm-hmm, but yeah. uh, no, this was a pretty funny interview. We talked about Jeremy's, again, Jeremy's background. How, he's a stand-up comedian, how he got into that. We talked about Pete Holmes. That was funny. And, yeah. Uh, um, we also talked about uh, the Facebook page that he ran a couple of years ago called Lizard People of New York. Yeah, not to be confused um, with People of New York or Millennials of New York, the utter parody of it, of yeah, that page. <laughs> so if you want to, you could uh, look that up on Facebook. Yeah, also very funny. Very um, funny. Everything, this guy's just a, a funny guy overall. So he's, he's also written for um, um, Clickhole. Clickhole. And um, uh, The Onion. He, no, he hasn't written for The Onion, I don't think. No, no. Never or maybe he has. I don't know. Either <laughs> no, way, it was a good time. So uh, yeah, Jeremy Kaplowitz, baby. Let's do it. Downward Trending, the podcast where three friends break down the vast subcultures of the internet. I'm Lewis. I'm Joe. And today we're with some, we got Jeremy Kalpowitz on the podcast. Jeremy, um, hey. how would you describe yourself, Jeremy? Who is Jeremy Kalpowitz? Um, how would I describe myself? Uh, oh boy, I'm a comedian, I'm a writer. Uh, I, I should point out, I, I generally don't care about people, I don't mind if you mispronounce my name, but it's just funny because it's, it's Kalpowitz and it's funny oh, to I'm describe sorry. myself. No, no, I don't mind at all. But it's a funny question to describe someone who's a slightly different, like my uh, my alter ego, whose whose letters are slightly switched around. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> funny. We have a friend named Dalvin, and um, his alter ego is Darvin. That's his evil. Oh. Yeah, it's Darvin or Calvin at times, depending <laughs> on the day. Um. So yeah, you uh, might know Jeremy as the editor in chief of Hard Drive Mag, a uh, vertical of the Hard Times. It's just mm-hmm. a hilarious. Um, satire publication of 
sort of like punk and music culture, and Hard Drive is the gaming version to that. Um, recently, he's gained Twitter fame as uh, the <laughs> gamer uh, perspective presidential candidate, Ace Watkins, um, which is just a fantastic, like, sort of, just like, uh, like you, Ace Watkins just kind of sounds like it would be a character in, like, Wall Street, <laughs> someone like that. It's just a and the photo story. works, too, I mean, with a profile pic. The photo works perfectly, yeah. Yes. Uh, the photo is um, comedian uh, Phil Jameson, who okay. has been playing Ace in all our interviews and videos <laughs> and such. He's really funny. How did that come about? How did um, Ace Watkins' Gamer Press 2020 happen? <laughs> Uh, I mean, so for a long time, uh, the hard times has kind of seen Twitter as a, a bit of a waste because it's like, you know, it's fun to use Twitter, but it, we, it doesn't really drive clicks to your website. So mm-hmm. I was kind of given free reign to do whatever I wanted on Twitter, which led to me just kind of like shit posting about like all sorts of dumb stuff. And one of the things I've been doing for a long time was like making dumb tweets about how like, oh man, if a gamer was president, like all these issues would be fixed. <laughs> like we'd have skate four and just like dumb jokes. <laughs> And then eventually we um, were just like, let's just like go all the way and hire our friend to just play like a, a version of what that would be. And, and we wrote up all these these jokes for Ace Watkins. And we were like, man, it would be cool to get like 5,000 followers, mm-hmm. you know, in the mm-hmm. first few days. And then in, I think like the first day we were at, we had more followers than actual presidential candidate John Delaney. John Delaney, yeah. <laughs> like, so ridiculous. Yeah. But. Yeah, John Delaney, just what a pathos-filled character he is. <laughs> He'll like post things and I'll get like ten retweets, and like you'll see like Stefan Heck be like, "Damn, yeah. ten retweets! Ouch, man!" Yeah, that's uh, my favorite thing about attacking John Delaney is that you know his staff sees it because they don't get a lot of notifications. It's not like they <laughs> know his his phone's not blowing up that much. It's yeah, he's sort of like a Gil from The Simpsons type. Guy. <laughs> he's Gil, yeah. Um, yeah, Ace Watkins, I mean, I've always been a fan of, like, fake versions of things. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you remember Carl Diggler, the yes. political Yeah, player. Felix Biederman in uh, Virgil Texas. Virgil Te- yeah, um, who ended <laughs> up predicting the, ac- the primaries more accurately than Nate Silver at 538. <laughs> and so ever since that, I've just been obsessed with just, like, fake versions of people. And the, something about Ace Watkins, man, like... What do you think it is about gamers and gamer culture? Yeah. And just simply saying the word, like, you know, <laughs> gamers rise up. You know, gamer was in charge. Everything would be great. Like, what do you think is it that about gamers and gamer culture that oh, is just man. so funny to people? And do, you well, think what's, do you think what's funny about it has changed in the course of existence? Yeah. I mean, um, God, video games. Uh, I, I feel like it's one of those weird things where, like, there was this whole identity that like nerdy people built around being nerdy. And and now that like, it's very profitable and cool to be a fan of like superheroes. They don't know what to do. So they're just like, fuck it. Like, and they're just like digging deeper. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, it's very funny. It's, it's, it's always fun to like, cause the, I feel like normally the gamer rise up thing like is, is very uh, right wing or like alt right. And it's been fun to sort of uh, piss off a lot of the people who think that we're going to (laughs) go alt right by being more left wing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, you're right, like, Marvel is, like, the most profitable um, franchise to the point where, like, you know, like, uh, China with, like, their nascent Mm -hmm. capitalist economy is just, like, Mm -hmm. billions of dollars into it. Yeah, or you find, like, a Um, video on YouTube of a guy doing, like, Africa by Toto, but it's, like, 50 cartoon impressions doing all the songs, and they get, like, crazy views and clicks. Yeah, and so, 
sort of nerd culture, quote unquote, yeah. has become the mainstream now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, that's like that's been happening for so long that it's oh, right. not like you know totally novel for me to be like, well, it turns out that uh, it's really popular to like superheroes. Yeah. But um, that's definitely like where that that stems from. I think. <laughs> so. Um, you said like pretty quickly you had more followers than uh, John Delaney. Um, how quickly did it catch on? I, it, it really blew up. I, I don't, you know, it's been super weird. It blew up a lot quicker than we thought it would. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm like really happy with how well the Hard Times and Hard Drive does as a whole. But I don't think any of us predicted. Like even at the Hard Times, like I probably, you know. The, we didn't really tell the hard times that much that we were doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, they were a little annoyed. They're like, you guys got to, like, tell us if you're going to launch this big thing. And we're <laughs> like, we didn't. Like, we thought it was just going to be, like, a dumb tweet. Like, no one thought it was going to be, like, people. We, we, we get, like, interview requests all the time. It's, like, it's been kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah. And so like, it's definitely unexpected. It's just, like, it's interesting because, like, there's that, you know, the Mark Twain quote, like, mm-hmm. explaining a joke is, like, dissecting a frog. Mm-hmm. And it's, but it's like, the thing is like, I really like, I just like, I can't stop. I have to keep going back to like, I just don't know what it is that's so funny about, about gamer culture. About gamer culture. Did you have a gamer, yeah. like a guy like just gaming with Mountain Dew and shit? Just the, <laughs> the archety- yeah. you know, you have the, RP, the archetypical image, but then you have the even larger cultural image of do it. Do you think it has anything to do um, with this specific presidential election? Just yeah. How, um, I don't know. I mean, I think it definitely is something that could probably only exist in the Trump era, even though we're not, like, trying to do Trump jokes. Because, like, it seems like, not even the Trump era, but just, like... Gamergate, like, post-Gamergate internet. Well, with, like, the primaries, I mean, you have people like Andrew Yang. Yes. The podcast president. Seems like he's the first president to run self-consciously as a meme. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the Star Wars, like, uh, go vote video he did. Yeah, and and so... I think almost what makes it so funny is that, like, a, a gamer running for president um, really doesn't <laughs> seem that far off from reality. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, like, you know, people are so wrapped up in the identity of being a gamer. Mm-hmm. It's even though, like, video games, you know, you, you'd hope that, like, in 30 years, video games, it would be like someone being like, oh, I'm super into reading books or watching movies where you're like... That, yeah, like, everyone likes movies. It's not like, like, what do they say, like, 90% of people play video games in the U.S.? So I'm guessing, you know, in 30 years, it'll probably be an actual gamer president just because, like, yeah, people have played Mario and exist in the world. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just, uh, it's it, it's one of the last, like, major pop culture things that's, like, super-duper popular, but also something that people latch onto as an identity. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where the, the silliness comes from, where it's, like, you, you see all these people who are just... I don't know, trying to identify something that everyone likes. Yeah, no word. Do you think there'll be like a beta or work type thing where it'll be like, like, like Beto keeps like pushing the fact that he's in a punk band. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think it'll be the same thing for like a gamer like candidate? Like he's doing like Smash Brothers capitalism or something like that? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I mean, that's what Hillary did in 2016. She did the Pokemon go to the polls that's nonsense. True, yeah. And now Liz Warren's going to do Old Town Road, go to the Old Town polls. <laughs> I, would, I, I mean, I hope so. Throw someone on the... Uh, Lil Nas X did reject Mayor Pete's request to be on the that. remix. That was oh, that was such a good thing. That, that was hilarious. <laughs> seeing that story just like played to my like sense of humor so well. It's, it's like, yeah. of course a candidate was going to try to get on an old town road just as it was be getting old. Dalvin know? wants uh, Liz Warren to do one. 
an old town or hood remix. She won't, he, he's like, get her on, and I'm like, on one, and I'm like, are you sure about that? Honestly. Do you want her to win or not? I'm not I, I'm not sure, like, how much Lil Nas X, like, knows about Mayor Pete specifically. He doesn't. He even said, like, I don't know much about him. I just way, don't want to be, like, politically Either way, sad. it's, like, a very, it just shows how intelligent he is and how attuned to internet culture he is. Yeah. Because he knew that if he did an Old Town Road remix oh, yeah. with a presidential candidate, it would, it would, kill it. It would be over immediately. <laughs> That'd be huge. Yeah. It's like when Lena Dunham did the pantsuit rap. It's like right. That was yeah. a good era. So Jeremy, how did you um get mi- <laughs> <laughs> how did you get up uh, mixed up with um the hard times and start oh how did you start how you start writing satire in general? Because I know you did um lizard people of New York. Right? Sure. How, so how did yeah. all of that how did all of that lead to uh, writing for the hard times and eventually um, editing um, for sure. Hard Drive? Um, Were you a gamer so, growing up? Actually. What's up? Were you a gamer growing up and everything? Um, you know, I never, I like played a bunch of video games growing up. I definitely was like a big Halo 3 kid and all that stuff. But I don't think that I was like, like, you know, I feel like growing up you have a lot of, you know, everyone has like their friend who's like, I'm going to be a video game guy when I grow up. And I definitely wasn't that guy. But uh, I started doing comedy in college. I know you guys are Stony Brook students. I went to Binghamton yeah. University. Okay. Cool. Where there was, um, we started a comedy, stand-up comedy club, and I was doing stand-up there. What did you study there? I majored in economics. Oh, okay. It was uh, very uh, useful. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, I was pretty bad at school. I did a lot of stand-up while I was not supposed to be. I should have been studying, probably. But, um, yeah, was, so that's when I started doing Lizard People of New York was in college. It was just kind of like another thing where I wanted to do like a one joke thing but then people liked it so i just kept going mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and then i was writing a bunch of when i graduated i was trying to write for a bunch of different websites um the cool thing about a lot of websites like the hard times above average uh the onions a little harder but reductress you can just if anyone can pitch to write for them and it's just a matter of like trying a bunch of times and writing a lot and then getting better so i was just writing for a ton of websites and um and i started writing for the hard times which is, I think, probably the easiest website to write for, just because they're like extremely transparent. Anyone can write. Mm-hmm. Just send in. A, you can just send in a pitch tomorrow, and the editor in chief of the Hard Times will read it. And uh, so, yeah, I was just writing for them, writing a lot of articles, and then um, I don't know how in depth you want me to get it to, but uh, I, start, uh, I was writing. Uh, so for Wizard People of New York, I was getting sick of doing it, mm-hmm. and I I didn't like doing it anymore. So I wanted to get help. So I was I was talking to it's me and my friend Mike Amory who is an editor for Hard Drive now, too, and uh, Matt Sainkum, the editor-in-chief of The Hard Times, we were chatting, and I was like, I want to like figure out how to do this better. And all three of us came up with this idea for a website called Truthbang. I don't know <laughs> how into Lizard People of New York we were, but that was a short-lived project because it was a, a satire of um, the alt-right, and it failed very miserably. Oh, truth. And um, truth. It was, uh, we created a whole fake character. His name was Ben Brown, and he was like an Alex Jones type, and we had all these like crazy alt-right like satire things and it was just awful and then um that turned into hard drive at the end that fell and then we were like let's do a different thing and that was hard drive how'd you meet matt sankom initially um like i said like if you write for the hard times it's super easy to just like talk to whoever created it so um it's a really democratic system there there's a big pitch group in the hard times and people pitch and then everyone votes on it and then the editors decide what will make it onto the site and so yeah, it was just like, you know, I had written a few good articles, so I was kind of just like, they, they knew my name, I knew, and we had chatted a few times, so yeah, it's really easy. I, I didn't meet him in person until years later, actually. Oh, okay. And then, do you feel like doing a site like this 
have you since doing um, hard drive have you kind of familiar familiarized yourself more so with gamer culture at all like have you made an effort to like have you tried to like do that or did you kind of just um, go off of just um, what are, your instinct and such I um i yeah i mean i definitely like grew up uh with like nerd culture and game or stuff like that my i and you know obviously if you want to have a good video game comedy website you should try to read up as much as you can it's definitely a good ex- excuse to just like play a video games all the time because mm-hmm. i'm like well i gotta research for my uh fake job <laughs> but uh yeah no my i feel like my job as an editor is to take people's video game ideas and make them funnier so mm-hmm. uh i don't worry too much about being an expert in everything but you know, that's like, you know, we have four different editors. Everyone kind of has their niche. Mm-hmm. We come together as one big video game uh, Voltron. What's your niche, would you say? My niche? Yeah. Uh, ooh, that's a good question. Um, I definitely know a lot about, I feel like I, I'm, I'm big into, like, the movies and TV. And so I, a lot of times, like, if there's, I think I've written, like, eight articles complaining about George R. R. Martin not writing his books fast enough. <laughs> so that's definitely a niche. Um, yeah, I guess like if you look on the website, I bet a lot of, uh, a lot of Game of Thrones and a lot of Smash Bros articles are probably written by me. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, uh, with Hard Drive, how long has that been going by the way? Yeah. When did it start? It was a little over two years. I think it was June, 2017. Oh, okay. Wow. I thought it was longer. Yeah. Um, so, uh, (laughs) with like Hard Drive Mag, um, like, <coughs> sorry. Um, uh, so like, are you looking to like expand uh, the website's coverage in in any way, or or you're just like sticking like straight satire? Oh yeah, because I know um hard times did um hard, has just launched hard noise. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Would you want to do um, that with some like hard drive at all? That'd hard be cool. Pixels? I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely love to. Hard Noise has been really cool because it's a collaboration with Pure Noise, uh, right. which is a record company. Mm-hmm. And it's been really cool because it allowed for they like paid us much of money, and now um, the editor of the Hard Times, Bill Conway, gets to go gets to be the first employee of the Hard Times, which has been really awesome. Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd love to do that kind of stuff. I, it's always fun to expand and do different things. That's why we're doing the whole Ace Watkins thing. Is like right. it's fun to like you know see how far we can push like a character. Like we're gonna do some live shows probably in like a month or so <laughs> as like political rallies. Oh, It'll really? Has anyone ever? Have you got any like messages um, from people who think Ace Watkins is real or, or who take it <laughs> at face value? Every ten minutes, uh, if I look, at, I'm gonna open up Twitter. Uh, we have like like we get like uh, maybe fifteen tweets or direct messages a day asking if it's real. Uh, it's been really weird. Right. And to those people, I say yes, it's real. Go write them in. <laughs> it's funny. Fucking who cares? It's funny because, yeah, like observing like Ace Watkins, it seems like it's in this perfect sweet spot where enough people know it's a joke and enough yeah. people are confused and think it's real. It's where you just get like the best cocktail of replies to anything <laughs> you tweet. Um, yeah. How many times has Ace Watkins like gone in character on like a podcast or a show or, or anything like that? And if he hasn't, would you want him to? <laughs> uh he's done it a few times mm-hmm. not too often because it's actually kind of hard to be on as ace watkins for like too long mm-hmm. um <laughs> he was on um dorkly they did a little stream and he was on uh, i can't remember internet today is a youtube channel he was on mm-hmm. if we've been trying to limit him like a, like we're a real campaign staff you know we don't want him out there too much 
Right. <laughs> keep him uh, keep him precious. He needs to be well rested for his. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Instead of well, doing yeah. um, a restaurant photo op like everyone, would he do like a you know like an arcade photo op or something like that? <laughs> Stranger Things kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll do all sorts of stuff. We'll do a. I, I want to do a rally in Second Life. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Have people, we'll kiss people's uh, virtual babies. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually, I just, uh, my friend Dal and I were reading about um, this man who runs like a VR church. Oh, yeah. Uh, through Oculus Rift. And, wow. Um, and it's funny because like we were talking and we were like, this might be the cure for like inceldom if they just like put on goggles and go to like VR like, Christian church. <laughs> Yeah. Just give them a, their own little society to live in. Yeah, yeah. why not, man? So you should Quarantine do, them online. He should do um, a photo up there, you know, <laughs> the VR church. Yeah, I mean, the crucial incel vote. Yeah. <laughs> the crucial incel. Uh, do you ever, does Aid, what is Aids Watkins' um, position on incels? Yeah. Is he trying to appeal to the incels? I'd like to think that Ace Watkins is anti-incel. Mm-hmm. We've been making jokes about how um, Ace Watkins isn't has never had sex before like we keep doing all these jokes these jokes about uh oh, how yeah. like you can't have a sex scandal if you never had sex <laughs> and i didn't even realize it but like all these um asexual people have like have been looking up to ace as a oh. as a asexual icon wow. i never I, I totally forgot that the that the word that asexual people use for themselves is aces mm-hmm. oh. and um it was all there right in front of us the whole time yeah that's great, yeah. Ace. So Ace is canonically Volcel, I guess. Nice. Yeah. Nice. You can only, you only, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Sure. He only focuses on the gaming, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He's a single-issue vote, uh, candidate, and that is gaming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the number one issue. Yeah. What was I going to say? Um, how did you... Wh- where are you from, Jeremy? I'm from, uh, I'm from Long Island. I'm from Valley Stream. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, Nassau County. Oh, wow, okay. How was that? Wait, wait, what are your thoughts? On, what, is, uh, what is Jeremy Kaplowitz's thoughts on Long Island? Oh, boy. Uh, very flat. Could be a little hillier. Mm-hmm. It, is a little, it is very flat. What are your thoughts on, um, we're in a post-bagel guy society. Do you feel like the Raptors coming for Long Island? Yeah. For Long Island? Yeah. Oh, man, I hope so. That'd be great. <laughs> Get rid of it. Dunk it into the ocean. Are you guys from Long Island? I know you're yeah. in Stony Brook. I'm from Holbrook, baby. Yeah, uh, I'm from Lake Ronkonkoma, which is a town okay. known for having a haunted lake. Yeah. I, I would say on our side of things, Ronkonkoma is known for being the end of a the subway train, line. The train station, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, Bagel Guy lives about 20 minutes away from us. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I knew, like, as soon as that happened, because it said it was at a Bagel Boss, which is, like, a chain. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There's one like, in my neighborhood where I, I grew up. I was like, oh, fuck. He's like, <laughs> this has to be Suffolk County. There's a comedian, um, Tim Dillon, who had, mm-hmm. he has a podcast. and he, He's from Long Island, too, but he was saying, like, yeah. he made a good point. If you point a camera at anywhere where goods and services are offered, <laughs> you will find a Bagel Boss-type guy or a situation like yeah. that happening anywhere at any point of the day. I was going to say, I like to think that he's like a mythical like leprechaun-like figure and he just exists in every shopping street. <laughs> he's on Cameo. <laughs> yeah, he's on Cameo now. It's, it's a nightmare. Um, he tried to turn it into like a viral thing, that guy. He, he made a whole <laughs> yeah. Twitter account. He's selling merch. I mean, he probably yeah. You probably got an agent and manager. Right? <laughs> yeah, probably. He got a development deal off of that. He's doing a show where he boxes other um, viral celebrities. That is so dark. I'm not, even, I'm not even joking. It's a real thing that's happening. Wonderful. That's so dark. Um, 
Yeah, so, like, how did you get into stand-up? Were you, like, a comedy nerd growing up? Yeah, how did you get into stand-up? Oh, yeah. Were you always writing as a kid? How did, you, how did, you, how did comedy and writing in, come together, and how did you get into those things in general? Uh, yeah, I was definitely someone who was, like, writing jokes all the time. Uh, I had a friend in high school who we both, like, got really into stand-up comedy and had somehow convinced ourselves that you had to be 18 to do it. So okay. we just, like, wrote in notebooks and then threw them away. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, and then uh, I visited him in college at Geneseo, and we saw Patton Oswalt, who's, like, one of our favorites. Oh, and his opener was fucking awful, and it inspired us to finally uh, to go do comedy. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, so, like, so did you form the stand-up comedy club at Binghamton? Uh, I did not. I joined, I want to say, in its second year. It was it was formed by a guy named Mike Amory, who I, I mentioned yeah. before is now an editor for the hard drive. Um, but yeah, I, I joined pretty early on. That's always, like, very interesting to me, because um, I almost went to Emerson College in mm-hmm. Boston, and they have, you know, that's, like, the like comedy writing school yeah and, um, yeah they have like a stand-up comedy club like an improv club don't they have the uh, comedy major i know yeah, some, yeah. The, the, yeah. They have a that's wild major. that is weird i don't know if i would major in that but i um, would not no that'd be a bad major yeah <laughs> you can major you don't need to no one's like checking your resume at open mics you don't need yeah. to major in comedy no. um so yeah like how did the stand-up comedy club work would you just like workshop sure. jokes and like try them out in front of each other yeah yeah basically that was basically it we were a bunch of we just had like a group of people and we would hang out in um like you know rooms and just like do our own little open mics and then we would put shows on around campus and around town oh that's sick that's great yeah it was really cool yeah. college uh, is one of the easiest places to do stand-up comedy and i recommend it to everyone yeah. um yeah, so, like, did you become known around campus, or... or uh, we, you know, a little bit. We, not too much, but um, my senior year, Nick Offerman came to campus, and we somehow wow. convinced the SA to let us open, and, uh, yeah, it was really cool. I got to do stand-up for, like, 3,000 people in college. Oh, that's great. Oh, my God. How was that? It was uh, the biggest audience I will ever do comedy in front of, and it was really <laughs> cool. What were you? What kind of what comedians and what comedy were you? What, what kind of what were you into uh, growing up as you were kind of um, growing up? Yeah, um, I was really into uh, like I want to say like my favorite comedians growing up were like Mike Birbiglia and Patton Oswalt. Those were those kind of guys. Um, I was really into like, really really into Pete Holmes. Yeah, and I know that's like not a cool <laughs> thing to say in 2019. Everyone hates on Pete Holmes online, but um, I, I I stand by his his first his special. Yeah, what was that called? Like Impregnated with Wonder or something like that? That was his album, which okay. is like fine. And then he had a special called uh, Nice Try the Devil. Right. Yeah. That was really good. And then he had um, Crashing and Did people you like really crashing? turned on him hard. Yeah, that that's interesting to see how like the rise and fall yeah. of even like minor cult celebrities now. Were you, were you a crash? Yeah. Were you a crashing guy? Did you, did you like no, crashing? No, I was not a crashing guy. That show was pretty awful. <laughs> too but many, uh, too many yeah, he's like one of those guys who got a little too famous and then lost his mind a little bit. Well, it's another. If I never met him. I'd say I'm his biggest fan, but <laughs> on the podcast, I'm willing to make fun of him. It was another sad comedian. It's like, um, yeah, but still, it's like the the comedian the comedian who's sad show. It's a new re- <laughs> like a revolutionary idea. Yeah. What if a comedian yeah. was sad? What if he had? There's uh, so fucking many of them. What if he had a lot of sex too? Get back at his. <laughs> what if he ex- got to uh, rewrite his wife as the his ex wife as the villain of his life? Very yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is weird. Yeah, wait a minute. I, that's the thing. Like. I haven't seen people taking that angle with it, because that's what I thought it would be, but yeah. it seems to be people just making fun of him for putting himself in too many sex scenes. 
don't yeah, know. you know, I didn't even get far enough in the show to get to the sex scene parts. Mm. I only watched like three episodes. Uh, okay. His Batman that stuff for Funny or Die was hilarious, though, I will say that. Yeah, he was funny. <laughs> I feel like he Batman was legit really good for a while. And then the more famous you get, the less connected you are to oh, your yeah. audience because like, how do you stay relatable and super successful? It's a Judd Apatow like, effect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I used to work at a fucking Dollar Tree, which was a terrible job, but I used to do mm-hmm. overnight shifts, and I just used to listen to his podcast, like... Yeah, you made it weird. Every single, like, night. Yeah, me too. I think I listened to the Harris Whittles one, like, ten times. R.I.P. Mm-hmm. to a legend. Yeah, of course. Um, and, yeah, it's weird to see, like, because, like, it feels like the comedy boom is, like of the 2010s is like kind of over a little yeah. bit um and it's, it's peaked and it's going down it's very interesting to listen to like people start their podcast yeah. go up through the comedy boom and then yeah like, watch them through like sort of the fall of it yeah um and i'm just like it's very interesting because like i'm not sure why the comedy boom has ended necessarily mm-hmm. I, I think it's oversaturation i think it's like Nef- it's stuff like netflix i think it's just yeah. too much of it like mm-hmm. how many how many com- how many times uh, have you seen now where it's like Netflix sh- uh, comedy show gets canceled and you're like I didn't even know that was a show mm-hmm. until yeah. like like um, uh, Netflix had a show called um another and I I have I've since watched this show it's actually pretty good but uh Two Cut and Birdie mm-hmm. I didn't even know I didn't know what that was until it got canceled yeah, really I suppose it's just like a classic boom and bust I think it's I think it's what it is honestly mm-hmm. yeah well Netflix the part of the problem with Netflix is that it's more useful to them to start a show than it is to continue it because they just want you to subscribe so it doesn't help them as much to have a season two when they could just start another show and advertise that right have you ever thought about going into tv or or film like as a writer Uh, or something if they'll hire me man (laughs) i'll take any it's funny because like i yeah like i originally got into writing through writing comedy sketches same and i sort of had this like whole thing where like i applied to emerson i had to submit this big ass portfolio and I got in, but then, like, it was just, like, too expensive, so I'm like, all right, fuck this. Um, yeah. But it just seems like it's so hard to get a job. Because, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm just like, how am I, like, possibly going to make a go of this <laughs> if, like, I don't have rich parents? And then we chose journalism. It was culture writing. Which is a little, yeah, like, this mean, is totally an easy job where everyone gets paid a living wage. <laughs> so good for us. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm in the same boat as you guys. Nice. Uh, people often ask me what it's like working full time at the hard times, and I'm like, I have an office job. Yeah, weird. That's why I'm going to law school. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. So wait, so hard times is not your full time? Like, this is not your full time job? It is not. I mean, I'd like it to be sooner than later. It might, maybe soon, it will happen. But right now, it is not. Ah, oh, word. Um. So yeah, just going back to like lizard people of New York. I, I remember, mm. like, I, I was into it when it was out. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I just looked back at it before we did um, we started here and what I forgot was that you just took normal humans of New York pictures <laughs> and just tweaked, yeah. and just tweaked them a little bit just like it seems it's just kind of like that the way like Vic Berger edits yeah. videos where he takes what's already there and tweaks it mm-hmm. by like 10% and it just makes it that just much funnier just it completely absurd like yeah were you aware uh, that you were sort of capturing like lightning in a bottle with that I no, I definitely did not know I was, and it was slow. It was a pretty slow build. I, I think like the first like month or so, I was really excited that I got to like a thousand followers, which now I feel like no one would really think is that impressive. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was really, that was definitely something that I was like, I just thought it would be a one-time joke, but I wanted to fill the page with like <laughs> six or seven so that it looked like a thing and then just kept doing it. Um, so like how's stand-up going? Are you thinking of like recording your hour soon? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, my plan is to have a new hour every year for eight years uh, and then, uh, get canceled. Get canceled. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Goes on Legion of Skanks, gets canceled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I haven't been doing that much stand-up lately because of the hard times. The hard times has taken up a, a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. But I think that's kind of what everyone is doing right now. I was hanging out with a bunch of comedians lately, or recently. I remember someone was like, oh, look, it's a bunch of comics. And then someone was like, no, we're kind of all like media people now. Like We're, yeah. we're all like podcast adjacent. Mm-hmm. Do you like being a me? Do you like do you like that? Um, that? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of weird. Like you guys were saying, you know, the the stand up boom is kind of in a weird place where like I think people are kind of bored with stand up right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, for you know, to to some extent, uh, obviously there's a lot of great comedians right now who are like really killing it. But I, I would love to be doing more stand up. I don't know. It's a little bit of everything. They call it the um, the dandelion effect or a strategy uh. where you want to put out as many seeds as you can and hope that one will grow. Right. Is that an economic strategy? <laughs> no, not that I know of. I Nuts. was an awful economic student. I, I feel like that's more of like a, like an entrepreneur thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting, uh, because like someone who like I love and can never shut up about Connor O'Malley. Oh, he's great. Um, that's sort of what he does. Like he was a writer he was, he did stand up. Yeah, he wrote for Seth Meyers. He did for like sketches, and then he sort of blew up um, doing his um, strange like Trump supporting yeah. character. Yeah, they started doing Howard Schultz, which <laughs> the, his like Mark Sievers. Um, that was like so interesting to me because it seems like I actually wrote about this at the school, but it's so hard to satirize um, yeah. Trump for yeah. all the obvious reasons that like everyone knows. Like, yeah, right. Um, but he sort of captured like what is so funny and terrifying <laughs> about just like yeah. the manic energy that surrounds his whole like ethos, basically. No worries. Um, and yeah, like it, that seems to be sort of the way to go is just sort of just be like a polymath almost. You sort yeah. of have to make yourself into a jack of all trades now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Conor O'Malley is probably the only person to successfully satirize Trump in that way. Yeah. We tried. I mean, like, like I said, like we had a website called Truth Bang, and it wasn't particularly successful. And then, like, right around the same time was the Mark Sievers. Mm. Uh, I think his is called Truth Hunters. Yeah. yeah. And then um, Patriot Hole came out like a month or two later on the Onion. And then the fucking terrible Jordan Klepper show, which is weird because everyone on it is like super funny. Mm-hmm. It's just really. I think it's just really difficult. Yeah. I mean. Wait, was Jordan Klepper's show the, uh, the president show? No, no, no. No, that's um, the opposition with Jordan oh. Klepper. He, he was supposed to... Yeah, you know, it's weird because... I don't think I watched that one. Was it bad? It wasn't bad. I wouldn't say bad. I don't know. I it, was, it just was, like, toothless. It, it uh, didn't... Like Samantha yeah. Bee kind of thing. <laughs> well, it's not even that. It's that, like, he... It was very self-consciously he was trying to play, like, the Alex Jones kind uh, of, like, man, conspiracy figure. Okay. But he was trying to satirize it in the same way that like John Stewart was satirizing mm-hmm. Bush, where it right. was, he was it was trying like that smug liberal like look how dumb uh, yeah. thing, and it's like that's not really how to do it. How you do it is you just put all the manic energy yeah. out there, and you you have to not really think about trying to be clever. Yeah, and, and when you have a bunch of brilliant comedy writers in a room it's very hard to fight yeah. against that instinct to no, sort of craft like perfect like these Harvard Lampoon guys per, per, not like, even that like just like per, 
perfect. Yeah, like uh, two of the guys on that show were Josh Sharp and Aaron Jackson, and they're both like like huge New York City comedy people that everyone loves. Right, mm. and it's like yeah, it's sort of hard to fight against that instinct of trying to craft a perfect like setup punchline um, joke. Uh, when the real answer is just to be as dumb as possible. Well, that's, that, <laughs> because that's, a, that's the time we're living and in. Probably, it's as dumb as and probably it not be. even really have any writers. Like, just go off the cuff would even be funnier. Yeah, I don't, I don't even think O'Malley has writers. I don't even think he writes his stuff. I mean, I'd imagine he probably doesn't. I mean, it's probably he probably improvs like all of it. He has. He's in a, he's in a construction really yard. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think um, Joe Pera has filmed a lot filmed of those it, videos. Yeah, too, yeah he filmed and shot all out. those. Um, God, the construction yard thing. Like, what? what <laughs> Those people working in the background, like... He's wearing, like, orange contacts. He's covered in blood. They just, like, learn to ignore it, or does he, like, tell them what they're doing? I wouldn't doing? go to the guy if I didn't know he was. They have to be very confused by what's going on, which honestly makes it even, like, so much funnier. Have you ever seen an interview with Conor O'Malley where he's not in character? It's super jarring. It's very, yeah, it's it very is. strange. There's not that many, but it's he's weird. He's a very soft-spoken guy. Yeah. He's um, married to A.D. Bryant. Yeah, that's right. Like, I saw a one with him and Joe Pera, and seeing the both of them out of character, it just, mm-hmm. it was, again, it was, it was just weird. I was like, I don't, because Joe, first of all, I didn't know Joe Pera actually talked like that. Second of all, <laughs> no, I didn't. I thought that was like a joke. No, yeah. but no, it's actually his voice for the most part. He puts a little bit of an exaggeration on it, but yeah, it was just, it was, it was weird. It's like seeing like, you don't, you don't see that, even because I was watching the Yeah But Still interview with him, mm-hmm. which wasn't even an interview. It was just him as his weird like acting coach character. Yeah. <laughs> Like lives under like a, an overpass. Uh, Tyler Joseph. Tyler Joseph. Yeah, he got he got fired from his job because he cut off a girl's ponytail. Oh wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so that seems pretty good. No, I think so. Um, is there anything you would like to plug uh, before? Plug yourself, oh, Jeremy. Sure. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, just Google Jeremy Kaplowitz. I don't know. Uh, Ace Pockets. Go check out Ace Pockets. He's like our big guy right now. I think he's like he's he's maybe thirty followers away from a hundred thousand. Hell's yes. Oh, nice. Jeremy. And he's going to be the next president. Of course, probably. Jeremy. He's probably he would probably pull higher than uh, John Delaney. I think so. <sighs> I think he has already. <laughs> yeah. We like to end our interviews with a quick segment. I like to call nuts and bolts. Jeremy, a quick round of questions. It'll take only, okay. it'll only take a few seconds. Sure. When you're writing your articles, Jeremy, when you're writing, when you're making content, uh-huh. do you work on a, on a Mac or Windows system? Uh, Windows. I got a desktop computer. What? Okay. <laughs> Question two. Not or a bolt? Uh, either one, really. It's up to you. <laughs> Number two. When you're, writing your, when, you're, when you're making content and you're writing stuff, do uh-huh. you work through Google Docs or Microsoft Word? No, um, all of the hard times is run through Google Docs. Oh, I don't think anyone uses Microsoft. Luke O'Neill anymore. did. Oh, really? um, oh yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> so Patrick Marlboro. Um, really? Double spaced or single spaced? You know, uh, I'm such a. Oh, oh you mean um, it's, it's single spaced? I believe. Nice, nice, nice. Times New Roman or Arial? I think it, the default's like Calibri or something. Beautiful, beautiful. That's the New York Times font. Yeah, yeah no, Calibri. No. Oh no, that's Georgia. Never mind. Yeah, I know. Uh, Jeremy. This is, this is Joe's font corner. <laughs> this is Joe's font corner. Thank you for doing this interview, man. Really, I appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Luke, uh, how would you describe yourself, Luke Taylor? Uh, I'm a, you know, I'm a comedian. I'm a man about town. I, uh, I do, like... 
yeah, I guess comedian is what I'm going to settle on. Comedian, do some filmmaking and stuff like that. This is always such a question where I feel like I should know the answer to it immediately, <laughs> and then I uh, never have one ready. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. Um, how did you, so you're from Chicago, right? Yeah, yeah, I live out there right now. Are you from there? Or? No, I grew up in Washington, D.C. originally. So I've been in Chicago for like four years. How'd you end up doing comedy? How'd you end up getting into comedy? Because you're in a sketch group called The Shrimp Boys, right? Yeah, that's like my main... That's basically why it's like... And anytime someone asks me what I do, what I do I'm do, i like, oh, well, I do like sort of like weird alternative sketch <laughs> comedy with my friends and it's super multimedia focused. And then they go, I don't know what you're talking about. Please leave me alone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. So I do... Uh, I've been doing comedy in Chicago pretty much since I moved out here. I moved out here after graduating. Um, yeah, so I do do what I just said. Um, I also do like stand up and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But um, yeah, how did I get into it? I, I, I did like improv and stuff in college. Mm-hmm. And then post college, I just became friends with people in the community here. Um, my sketch group and I are part of a larger show called Hell Trap Nightmare, which is yeah, a yeah. Uh, comedy collective that runs out of Chicago. Sarah Sherman. Sorry? Sarah Sherman, right? Yeah, yeah, that's Sarah uh, Sherman host, Sarah Squirm on the mm-hmm. internet. Um, yeah, and so we're like, it's like a, it's it's a comedy show, but it's like super alt, super video media mm-hmm. focused, um, traveling freak show, as how Sarah describes it. <laughs> yeah, and so I've been working with them for, I mean, basically as long as I've been out here, um, like three and a half years. There and right. yeah. How did you end up in Chicago? Um, from D, going from DC to Chicago. Why not like New York or LA? So I moved, I went to school in Oberlin at Oberlin in Oberlin, Ohio. It's like a small liberal arts school. Yeah. What did you, you study there? I studied English. Oh, English, okay. Maybe you got that theater minor studying that English lit. Hell yeah. Um, Same. I, yeah, I like did, I did like a, I like spent a summer in Chicago doing like dumbass improv classes at <laughs> Second City and then like. All my friends were moving to L.A. or New York, and I really liked Chicago, and I was mm-hmm. kind of like, well, if I move to New York or L.A., I'm definitely not going to move then to Chicago. Right. Um, and I, you know, man, I love Chicago. I'm actually moving really soon with that whole group of people I just mentioned. We're moving to Los Angeles in oh, like wow. two months. But, um, yeah, Chicago's awesome, man. I, I really, really love my time here so much. Why? Why? What's, what's the transition to L.A.? What's the reason? Is it just for more business or – yeah, you know, I mean, Chicago is absolutely amazing. Best place to learn how to do comedy in the world. Truly recommend to everybody who's ever thought about starting doing comedy. It's like, mm-hmm. to me, the best place in the world because it's like all the benefits of a big city, but like not as much pressure, you know? Right. But we all do like pretty video focused stuff. And mm-hmm. I think, and there's just not that many jobs for comedy in Chicago. Right. Like, there's the second city main stage, which is like 10 people at any given time. And then the onion. Yeah. And that's it. You know, it's like, there's less than like 50 jobs for this like huge, huge, huge comedy community. And I think it just gets to the point where you're like, well, I love doing this and it's so fun. And I would also love to make money off it if I possibly can. Right. It's at all possible. That would be nice. So that's kind of the impetus. Right. So then you recently wrote a device article. There is, you like kind of went with, um, Semi that went like sort of like viral, soft viral, or actually yes. big viral, I think. Where do you yeah. want to talk about that? Do you want to explain what that is a little bit? Yeah, so uh, I <laughs> so I wrote an article entitled 
entitled oh shit i should know the title of my own article but i'm literally gonna google it <laughs> i was banned from uh twitter for threatening to kill mr peanut uh, uh, it was kind of like so i wrote this article because i had been just for fun uh telling mr peanut i was gonna kill him for a few months since like january and then it got kind of blown up uh when i he tweeted ah, fuck well, i'll pull it up I, he tweeted, cashew in the snack aisle, how about that? And I tweeted, I will fly anywhere to ki- in the world to kill you, just name the place. And then Bad Baby, the Daniel Bergoli, the rapper, famous for saying, cash me outside, how about that? Yeah. Tweeted, thank you, at me. Uh, now, let's, let's get this straight. This version of this is very soft viral. My tweet got like a thousand likes, yada, yada, yada. Right. And then I wrote this article for Vice after a friend from college who works for uh, Noisy um, hit me up about writing this article, I was like, oh, yeah, sure, why not? And I wrote it, and people then got really mad at me for it, sort of unexpectedly. Um, I Yeah, man, it was pretty crazy. A, just uh, a lot of the posting elite blue check marks on Twitter were really not happy with what I did. I don't get why. I kept seeing responses to that. I was confused. I was like, what the exact object... Like why the I, the thing I kept seeing was like you were that they thought you were threatening the like actual social media intern or whatever, which I didn't do. Yeah, so uh, I didn't really like, get the it's idea. The classic thing where my only response to that was like, well, if you read the article, you would see I didn't do that. But then, like, obviously, saying read the article is like such a null and void argument on the <laughs> internet, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think I really hit a nerve with a group of people that. Um, are uh happen to also be the most online people ever which are social media managers right Uh, right. and they didn't like that i did it but yeah you're right it was insane i mean it was basically people would like man this one woman on instagram sent me this message about how um what i did was the same as when she was a social media manager for a company and a man threatened her life if she didn't send him a hoodie from the company. So Jesus. she used her own money to send this guy a hoodie. And it's like, that is like this absolutely horrible, awful, awful, awful thing. I hope never wish upon any, anyone, but also right. it's not what I did. I just, no. I just told Mr. Peanut I wanted to put a bullet in his brain a bunch. Do you, what do you think, what do you think it says about the Twitter rules that like this was banned, but like, you know, someone who's actually like promoting violence on Twitter is not. It's insane. I mean, it's Twitter to me is so clearly like it's it's so at this point laughably transparent and that it's just like prioritizes, you know, high traffic users and content. Right. Uh, up until the point where it can anymore. You know what I mean? It's but they're all like that. You know, it's like when I remember people were like, yes. Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, taking a stand, finally banning Alex Jones. And it's like, you know those motherfuckers wouldn't abandon him if it didn't look so bad PR-wise, you know? It's like, it's so just like, uh, I don't know, it's so weird. I mean, this is obviously such an obvious point, but it's like, yeah, obviously the giant media corporation doesn't, like, actually care about the freedom of exchange of ideas, you know? It's just so stupid. Do you think, like... Will you ever be, do you think you'll ever be allowed back on Twitter? And do you want no, to be I'll even? I'll tell you what, and I'll say it here, is that yeah. what I figured out literally this afternoon oh. is that you can, because, okay, so I kept making new accounts. Yeah. You, I kept getting banned because you need a phone number, and I'd put my phone number that was banned, or I didn't put a phone number, and my account was locked. But Google Voice, you can get a free phone number. Oh. 
So I'm going to try that, and we'll see if I can get back on Twitter, and I'll give you my handle once it gets set up. Oh, we're okay. I really miss Twitter, man, kind of more than I ever thought I would. Uh, it's It makes me way less online, which is, like, maybe bad, but it's also, like, where am I supposed to sort of tweet all my dumb shit, you know? No, word. Have you tried, like, have you tried other, like, Instagram or Facebook or something like that? Have you gone back to those, or...? Yeah, I've been using Instagram more, but it's just, like, not the same, you know? I mean, it's really, it's just, it doesn't, like, what am I going to do? Just make, like, stories where I just, like, tweet, or I just, like, put in my Instagram story what I would have tweeted. That would look insane, you know? Like, I have been using the other, you know what I've been using more again is Facebook. Really? Which is weird. I, uh, because it's, like, I have no, it's just the main thing I would check is Twitter, and now I don't have it, so I just look at facebook which is there's nothing on there that's good it's not good on there no right very strange um would you would you consider doing more vice articles i would do you Um, want to be able to do would you consider being a freelancer like on that end (laughs) yeah i mean shit if they would have me it's so funny too because a part of the reason people were mad is i that what i the impression i got is they thought that i was just like a vice writer (laughs) like edgy idea to like own yeah lives, you know and it's just like oh no i was just like some dumb weird twitter guy that was making this dumb joke for my like 20 people to regular read my tweets and then it just became this whole other thing you know right so from there like did that whole so i guess did that whole um controversy did i help did i get you any like did that boost your like comedy career at all did people start like did that give, did you think that helped you exposure wise like get you more like attention like more getting in front of more eyeballs as it were I think so. I mean, you know, that was kind of the whole thing is that in the end of the day, uh, it's just like all of the hate towards me is over. All the nobody's like reaching out to me until tell me what a shithead I am. So like at the end of the day, all I have is like a nice vice article on my like resume. You know what I mean? Right. It's just like I don't know. And then it was nice. Like what I'll say is like no comedy people seem to really get mad at me. It was only posting media people. Oh, really? And like friends of mine who are like friends with people who are much more established than me were like, oh yeah, so-and-so was like saying how funny your article was. So I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, is yeah. that going to turn into a job? Uh, probably not. No, right. Us, but uh, it'd be nice if it did. Um, in the light of that, what are, what, you mentioned like the impression was that um, – you were, people thought it was like, oh, you're some vice writer owning the libs. Were, did you did you see did you notice at all like any sort of like suddenly some like alt right people on the internet were like looking at this like oh the libs are mad like some guy like made a joke yeah. with Mr. Peanut and shit like that. There's two articles at least that I could find oh, from no. right wing websites being like, can you believe like this vice article got <laughs> silenced for like speaking truth? You know, like <laughs> it, it just immediately when I read it, it was like, oh no 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 no, that's like not it at all. That was not my intention at all. Oh man, I can send you them. It's it's literally from a, a, a website called RedState.com. All right, like, not good. What happened? Did they reach out to you for comment at all or? Absolutely not. I like literally just found it because obviously when I got canceled, I just oh, yeah. systematically Googled my name over and over and over and over again, you know? But is that really being canceled though at this point? Is it really like canceled? Because I feel oh, like you're. I say it tongue in cheek. I mean, it was oh, yeah, a word. cancellation. No, like, yeah. Nobody even knows who the fuck I am, you no, know? Yeah. So it's like, how can I get canceled, you know? No, word. So, like, yeah. how, tell me about the. So, um, I guess moving on from that, tell me about the shrimp. How did the shrimp boys, like, how'd you meet the, the, the other guys in that troop? How did you. Um, how'd you meet Sarah Sherman and all that? Oh, yeah. So, um, so I, well, I originally kind of met everyone through Sarah. So everyone in Helltrap went mm-hmm. to um, school together. They all went to a school called Northwestern in Chicago. Oh, okay. Uh, 
So that's how they all know each other. Then I have a friend uh, who lives in New York now named Maya Sharma who Mm -hmm. grew up with Sarah. And we got introduced when I was out here doing dumbass comedy classes. And then we kind of just like met up and like we're hanging out at open mics and stuff right when I moved out here. And we sort of just hit it off. And her friends became my friends, yada, yada. That's kind of how I met Wyatt and David as well as uh, Mm – Wyatt and David both went to school together. That we're def- they're like way closer now than they were in college. Like we're all super close now. We're kind of inseparable bunch. But mm. yeah, that's kind of how it started. And then, you know, we make a new sketch for Hell Trap every month. It's like super weird media stuff. It's a shameless plug. You can find our shit on YouTube. No worries. Um, yeah, if you just hit up the Shrimp Boys. Um, yeah, man, that's kind of the base of it. And now we've been, you know, doing this for three years. We're going to continue doing our monthly show in LA and stuff. Right. We get to travel around sometimes and perform. It's a lot of fun. Are you looking to work with other comedians like Brandon Wardell or Jack Wagner who are out there kind of, in the, or like Zach Fox who are out there in that same like yeah, scene? those dudes are really cool. I don't, I know Zach Brandon Fox who also got banned. Uh, Sarah's better friends with him. But yeah. yeah, those dudes are cool. You know, I, you know, I'm down to work with fucking anyone, bro. Um, but yeah, you know, I like all those guys. I mean, it's like birds of a feather of, like, mm-hmm. the extremely online comedian guys. You no know word. what I mean? And, like, that's, it's all the same shit. Um, what was I going to say? So, like, if making videos online is kind of like, I guess some people I've seen, I've seen, like, one thing I've seen is that we're in kind of a post, like, online video internet where, like, the idea of making videos online isn't as, like, maybe, like, not as lucrative as it was maybe in 2008. When you yeah. make, what is your when you when you make when you started making videos um, for and putting them online? Did you expect to like to for them to really get like a ton of views and expect to kind of like monetize them to get like and kind of make a lot of and get a lot of like uh, kind of traffic for those? Or is it more just kind of a way to put stuff out? I mean, I think it's like uh, we're all friends in Helltrap because mm-hmm. traditional avenues of comedy like didn't make sense to our like broken brains, you know. Right. Um, so I think a when you get into the alt comedy world, like videos like really quickly becomes an obvious outlet for you right. because you just control it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, the videos we made like to like varied amounts of success of like view counts and stuff. It's just to me like proof of concept in a lot of ways, or just like. A, it's, like, fun, you know, yeah. so obviously yeah. that's why I like to do it. But also it's just, like, I don't know. It's, like, as I think about, like, moving and stuff, it's, like, oh, it's cool that, like, not only do I have, like, live material, but I also have these, like, body of videos that, like, I think show my voice well. Right. And my, like, capabilities as, like, an editor and, like, you know, just, like, your ability to create stuff, you know. Um are we in the is it over the age of videos definitely on youtube like i don't think it's like i feel like possible to even like really become one of the new people making monetization off it and at least in terms for like funny content you know that being said on twitter like the front-facing camera video is taking the goddamn internet by storm i'm sure you've seen these like Mm -hmm. yeah like i don't know so you know this i know someone who's literally doing so well off of literally just making front-facing twitter videos so to each, there's always a new avenue on right. If someone was looking to like start to, to kind of get into comedy and just start making videos, just like in the same way you kind of were, like, just to kind of show off their like abilities, would you recommend they do it just for that reason alone? Yeah, I mean, I've learned so much from making videos. You know, yeah. I I think it's such a good 
It's the classic. I mean, this is the thing that literally every single person who's ever made any sort of like video or film or something says, but it is true. Is like you have all the tools. Like you can literally shoot shit on an iPhone. Mm -hmm. I did that for a long time until I bought a camera that's also maybe at this point not as nice as newer iPhones. But mm -hmm. like, I don't know. It, it's, I, you know, they're so like my early like videos I've made, like some of them are so bad, you know, but. <laughs> You, I think when you start making stuff and you then the more you make, the less precious any individual video becomes. And then it's just right. like becomes easier to make more stuff, if that makes sense. No, that's yeah. at least what I found. Um, so I'm assuming you have a day job. Is, is this your is, is comedy your like main do you have a day job or is this your main job comedy? No, I do have a day job. I'm also I do like after school tutoring for standardized oh. tests, okay, uh, which is a thing I've done for a long time. And I, uh, it's chill, man. It's a chill, flexible job that pays well, and I cannot mm -hmm. complain. No way. I think it's one of those jobs I would keep doing where unless I got like a 40-hour-a-week job in comedy, I yeah. will probably always keep SAT tutoring a little bit. Oh, all right. So like how do you, I'm like, how do you um, balance – how do you balance doing like these kind of uh, sketch videos and doing like all these live shows with having a day job and like you know keeping up an image for like a day job, like an SAT tutor? Yeah. You know, like, do you ever I worry mean, about like um, – like, like, I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you ever worry about someone like – like a tutor, like finding one of your videos and be like, oh, no, like, oh no, maybe this isn't the perfect one, or you know. Not that I'm saying that's the case. I'm just saying like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's. I've thought about it, and it's hard for me not to be like, it'd be so fucking funny to get fired from my job for literally some dumbass shit I posted. You <laughs> right. know what I mean? Yeah. A and at the same time, it's like the intersection of like teenagers. Like maybe one of my students could find it, but I'm also teaching like rich kids in the suburbs. And oh. it's just It just feels so far. Yeah. Um, but, like, you never know, you know. I, I don't make myself hidden on the internet, but I don't think in my, I'm attached to my job in any way. Right. Would you want to have a full-time job in comedy, or, do, or would you be satisfied if, like, say that doesn't work out, would you be satisfied just have keeping comedy part-time? You know, I'm satisfied, man. As long as I keep getting projects and it's mm -hmm. like I uh, – as long as I keep getting to work on stuff and – I mean, my perfect world is, like, rather than having a full-time comedy job, it's just, like, working project to project on things, right. you know? Um, and that does feel closer rather than farther away, you know? I get to do that more often than not, but mm – -hmm. at least more often than I used to. But, yeah, man, I mean, it's hard, you know? I, I think it's, like – I know a lot of people with full-time comedy jobs that still aren't, like, making a lot of money, you know? Like, right. it's, it's, a, it's a tough – I don't. I'm not the first person saying it. it's a it's a it's a dang tough industry, and they do not pay you well a lot, and probably they pay you worse than they ever had. Oh wow! But yeah, man. I mean, I look at this shit. It's like this is what I like to do. This is like, you know, why I, uh, you know, it gives me purpose and stuff, man. So I think I'll keep doing it as long as it still keeps being fun, at least. Um. So you've done. So what's What's the process of make of doing hell tra of like putting together a hell trap nightmare show and, and doing yeah. a video for like shrimp boys? Um, yeah. Well, okay. So hell traps is a um, is a monthly variety show we run at the Hideout in Chicago, Illinois, mm -hmm. uh, and it's basically like Sarah hosts and does a bit like a presentation usually using PowerPoint. Yeah. Um, then me and Wyatt and David perform and we do a sketch and like sometimes it's super multi multimedia um, driven, sometimes it's not. Um, and then our friend Scott Eggleston, who's also a part of Helltrap, does usually a solo character bit. Mm -hmm. And then we have guests on um, of comedians and performance artists and other weirdos in Chicago and people coming through town that we've met over the years. And then there's a band at the end. And that, mm -hmm. that's usually how it always works. Um, 
you know, it's it's a great thing because it makes us like kind of churn out a new sketch every month. Yeah, it's been so good for like our content creation. Um, a lot of our videos are like stage sketches that we converted into videos. Yeah. Uh. Um, so having you know, if you're uh, to anyone who's like thinking of doing it, I guess like. Um, having like an, a regular place to perform has been so, you know, critical for us, I think, you know, and mm-hmm. having this outlet of just like getting to create stuff on a regular basis, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, man. And then in terms of videos, you know, it's such a mix. Cause I think a lot of our stuff is very varied stuff is way more like multimedia project versus just like a character video versus just like a sketch. Mm-hmm. You know, there's three of us. So we're all having like different ideas. Um, about things you know yeah so that's kind of what it comes down to i guess um with sh- when you're doing like a sketch for say like the shrimp boys um are you guys writing do you guys what's do you guys write at all are you guys like or are you guys just winging it on camera as you're filming is it both like what do you guys write together how does that work that creative yeah, process work you know it's changed over the years mm-hmm. i'd say usually what our process is is that we each bring in a sketch all right uh, like we each just like write a sketch or two and bring it in and then read with each other like a week or two before hell trap mm-hmm. and we kind of just pick whichever one we like the most and then we spend time like rewriting it figuring out structural stuff um, and then just like, and then like whoever wrote it usually will like get, take notes, fix it. And then we'll just punch it up with jokes. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of it is just like running it a bunch of times and us trying to make each other laugh and just like finding like new ways within the framework of whatever we're doing to like make each other laugh. And like, that's a lot of like what the funniest stuff is. Right. Um, yeah, that's generally it. And then, so like the sketches, a lot of them are like sketch, like live sketches we did for mm-hmm. a long time. And then we were like, all right, well, we've done this so many times. It's like not really fun to do anymore. So we might as well make a video out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so you've done like both like sketch comedy writing. You've done journalism. You studied, yeah. you studied literature. Of those like surreal, what was, what's the one you found the most like creatively satisfying to do? Yeah, I mean, you know, my English degree is just literally uh, at this point just feels like the random thing I studied in college. Right. I, mean, I like reading a lot and I still read a lot, but um, yeah, it's funny, man. I've done like a lot of writing in my adult life, which is it's strange to me because uh, all growing up, I never like I was such a terrible writer. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like it's all kind of under this same guise of like I've never like – I kind of do everything I do because I've never really been good at like school or like the structures of of, of school, you know? Yeah. Um, so all this stuff kind of comes from just like me doing my weird shit because it's like all I know how to do at a certain <laughs> point. In terms of what I like the most, you know, I love writing sketches. It's so fun. I also like direct a lot of our videos. It's uh. a big part of what I do. I think that's the thing right at this very moment as we're talking, I'm enjoying a lot just because I'm making this short film mm-hmm. uh, right now. Oh, okay. We kind of move that I'm really excited about. Uh, yeah, you know, but it's fun. I think. It, it's fun that sort of in the modern internet world, it's kind of easy to do a little bit of everything. You yeah, know, which yeah. Is cool and sometimes can be stressful, but I don't know. Someone gave me a piece of advice when I moved to Chicago where they were like, you have to pick one thing and focus on it. Mm-hmm. Like an older person. And I, I kind of knew they were wrong and they ended up being like really wrong. You know, <laughs> it's, it's sort of fun, but like everyone I know who does comedy or the arts or stuff kind of does like a lot of different stuff, which I think is really cool. No word. Yeah, um, I don't know if that's a good answer. No, that's a very, no, that's a very good answer. That, that worked. <laughs> cool. Answered it perfectly. Um, 
So, Luke, I guess um, I like to usually, I usually like to, I like to wrap these interviews up with a with a quick uh, segment I call nuts and bolts. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, so Luke, when you're working, what do you edit with your uh, videos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for video editing, I use that dang Adobe uh, Adobe Suite, man. Hell's yeah. Do you like the it, Adobe Suite? Is it is it fairly priced? Is it? I, you know, man, so here's the thing is, and this is a tip to anyone who doesn't know, because I used this for years. If yeah. you still have an EDU email from like college or yeah. something, you can get the student discount oh. years later. I just lost mine because they yeah. finally figured out you can't have been an undergraduate for eight years. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it's great, man. It's like $20 a month and you get everything in the Adobe suite, which is sick. Um, you get like literally Photoshop, Premiere. Oh, yeah. Room auditions, awesome. Um, and now I pay like sixty dollars a month for it, which I'm not happy with. Mm. But I'm fucked because it's the only set of programs I know how to use. So it's what I use, and I'm just gonna keep paying sixty dollars a month until I'm dead, I guess. Oh dang. Um, um yeah. what do you edit on? Oh, I edit on a MacBook Pro. I used to have a desktop because I had this big idea that I was like, ah, if I have a desktop, I'll become a great editor. No but no it's uh, actually really annoying not to have a laptop, so I sold it and then bought a laptop. What do you shoot with? I shoot with a Canon Rebel T5i. Oh, geez, okay. It's like a, it's like a couple of years old camera, but it's nice. It gets the job done. Or nicer shit that I, if my friends have it, but that's not always... Luke, when you write it, when you're writing a sketch with people, you're writing these sketches, you're writing comedy. Are you writing on? Exactly, you out here, you're out there. Are you writing on Google Docs or some sort of screenwriting software? When I'm writing anything comedy, I use Google Docs, and then when I write like short films and shit, I use Celtics, which Hell is yeah. a free um, script writing software. Which someone told me recently is like now so out of date that if you turn it into like a professional, they'll like know that you don't pay for Final Draft or some shit. I don't know if that's true, but it freaked me out. Don't buy Final Draft. Don't. Don't buy Final Draft. It's 200 bucks. Don't do it. You don't need it. I know. That's what I'm saying. It's also like who, who – what kind of psychopath would also like – like, oh, like – you like oh you're like you didn't send the right format so your no. shit sucks like that's so weird you know if you're gonna buy a screenwriting app just get fade in the guy from star wars uses it and it's 80 bucks and all the updates are free it's way better and oh. way more intuitive if you're gonna do that just to celtic otherwise but yeah i know i like yeah i it's it's literally oh this is cool i didn't know about this yeah celtics is fine but it you do kind of like feel like it sucks shit because yeah. you're getting like it's on like like a, a torning website and it's no, yeah. ten years old and you're like okay. Plus, to pay for like more space, which is annoying. But Luke, when you wrote your Vice article, did you write double spaced or single spaced? Shit, that's a good question. It is I a good question. I, wrote, I think I wrote single spaced because I was like, ah, yeah, the newspapers. I gotta write single spaced. Nice. Times New Roman or Ariel? Last question. Whatever the baseline, I think it was Arial, because it's yes. whatever the baseline Google Docs run is now just what I always use. Excellent. Luke, thank you for taking it. Where can people, what, do you want to plug anything, any upcoming shows, any socials you do have? What do you want to plug? Any projects? Yeah. Follow me on Instagram at Luke Without Limits. Um, that's my Instagram. You can follow the Shrimp Boys on YouTube. You can also follow, follow my personal YouTube channel where I have uh, videos, which I think if you search Luke Taylor Cool Vids, you can find. 
Um, yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe you can. Um, it's also, like, all my other shit. Um, what else? We've got a hell trap coming up in Chicago at the end of August. You know, if you happen to live in Chicago, come check it out. It's a very fun time. You can even hit me up, and I can get you a comp or whatever if for some reason someone's like, oh, I'm going to be there. But, yeah. And can you find Hell Trap Nightmare live shows? Are there, are there videos of these episodes taped anywhere? Or? Um, let me think. We have like some trailers and stuff out, but not really. And yeah. that means you just have to come and check it out. Let All me right. see though. Now I'm like, is I like don't know. All as right. far as I know, no. But All we right. do have some content online. All right, nice, nice. Yeah. All right, Luke. Thank you for taking the time to do this interview, man. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. No problem. Have a good day, man. Yeah, thanks, man. Have a good one. You too, man. Peace.